Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I want you to know that for years, as I've watched the presidential debates, as I became a more mature person, I started to notice that there were too many questions that were not being asked of these candidates that were definitive, that were critical, that were at the core of what's going on, and that somehow the questions always moved into a similar gestalt. And then I thought to myself, well, this must be controlled, or maybe they agree up front on things. And sure enough, I read George Farah's book, No Debate, How the Republican and Democratic Party Secretly Control the Presidential Debates. As he talks about the Presidential Debate Commission, or the Commission on Presidential Debates, how it was started, how it evolved, how it was usurped, and how it really works. And I thought this is such an important time in human history. We all think it is every four years, but the stakes are so high now. George Farah is an attorney with Cohen Milstein, litigating large plaintiff class action suits. He is a member of the antitrust and human rights practice groups. He has taken on huge forms of litigation and is always trying to do the right thing, which is why I have read his book and invited him to the show. As we are standing before the next election, I want George Ferrer to tell you how it's all set up and how it really works so that you really understand why you never get a real debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome George Ferrer to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, the first question I want to ask you is how were you led? to write this book and to even notice that something was not right with these debates? Well, in 1996, Ross Perot was running for president of the United States for the, um, for the second time. He had won the presidential debates in 1992, and he had captured 19% of the vote, more than any other third-party candidate since Teddy Roosevelt in 1917. And yet, in 1996, when he ran again, and 76% of the American people wanted to see him in the presidential debates, and despite the fact that he had $29 million in taxpayer funds, he was excluded from the presidential debates. So I, I, at the time, I was astonished, and I wondered what organization was making that decision? What organization was defying the aspirations of the American people? And uh, I started doing some research. Uh, that, was the, that was kind of the seeds of my uh, frustration and outrage. And started doing research and um, uh, discovered something that, was not really talked about very much in the press, if at all, which is that every four years, the Republican and Democratic campaigns have gotten together uh, and actually hammered out contracts, secret contracts called Memorandum of Understanding, that dictate many of the terms of the presidential debates, including who gets to be included. And I got very lucky in the process of doing my research. A whistleblower gave me copies of the 1992 and 1996 contracts, which had never been made public before, and I moved forward and wrote the book. And one of the more, most fascinating stories is that once upon a time, we actually had a nonpartisan and courageous sponsor of the presidential debates, the League of Women Voters. And it was our voice in the negotiation room with the candidates that had the courage to fight and resist the efforts by the major party campaigns to manipulate our presidential debate process. But precisely because the League was so independent and so detached from the political process, the two major parties actually created something called the Commission on Presidential Debates, and it took over our presidential debate process in 1988. It seized control over our presidential debates in 1988, and ever since has allowed the two major parties to control the process through these contracts. So 
what we're really seeing here is uh, it, it once uh, an independent entity controlled our most important election events, and now, as a result of the Republican and Democratic nominees ratifying an agreement to, quote, take over the presidential debates, it's now completely under, under, under the control of the two major parties. Now, you call it a cartel, and I guess as an antitrust expert, you really mean what you say. What defines a cartel? A cartel is when two or more entities secretly reach an agreement to eliminate competition or monopolize a market. And that's precisely what we're seeing here. You know, when the legal women voters hosted our presidential debates, their interest was to make sure the debates reflected the wishes of the American people. So if a popular independent candidate emerged, or if there was a desire for challenging questions and, and uh, formats that are uh, creative and thought-provoking, they would fight to, to make sure that that candidate was included and the format was protected. For example, in 1980, John B. Anderson, an independent candidate for president, uh, bolted the Republican Party and ran. And he was polling about 12% of the polls. President Jimmy Carter, a Democrat, vociferously refused to debate him. But the league said, too bad, Mr. President. We're going to include John B. Anderson in the presidential debates, whether you like it or not. The president refused to show up, and the legal legal women voters invited Anderson to participate anyway, hosting a, a debate that attracted 55 million viewers. Four years later, you have uh, the Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan campaigns, the Republican and Democratic nominees at that time in 1984, trying to get rid of difficult questions. They vetoed 80 of the moderators that the league had proposed to host the debates because they were just trying to get rid of any moderator that would possibly challenge their nominees during the actual debates. The league did not just take this silently. They held a press conference and attacked the campaigns for attempting to get rid of difficult questions. And as a result of a massive public outcry, the campaigns were forced to accept the league's moderators for the next debates. So you didn't have a cartel during those election cycles because any effort by the campaigns to manipulate the process was halted by the league. And it's precisely because, the, as, as a result of the commission's creation now, it, every four years, the campaigns meet behind closed doors and reach an agreement. In any trust terms, this would be an unlawful agreement to monopolize the market or fix prices. In the political world, this is an unlawful agreement to shut out third-party voices and sanitize debate formats. And that's why we've seen since 1988 only the inclusion of a single third-party candidate, and he was only included at the, at the request of uh, the Republican and Democratic nominees, and why we've seen increasingly our formats uh, being more sanitized and more controlled um, over the years. Don't you think that when somebody is running for president and a sitting president should have to be spontaneous and deal with questions that are asked that they are not prepared for? Why do they need to prepare? They should be ready to rock and roll, don't you think? Absolutely agree. You know, there were 27 Republican primary debates. They had creative formats. They attracted an unprecedented amount of, uh, of viewers and, and audience members. The ratings went through the roof. They were creative. The candidates challenged each other. Uh, even Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas back in 1858 had seven three-hour debates addressing a single issue, the expansion of slavery in the United States. So historically, and at various times in our election process, we expect our contenders for the presidency to rise to the occasion and face unpredictable questions, uh, multiple voices, a creative formats, and deal with questions sticking on their feet. But when we arrive in the actual general election presidential debates, the most important election event that attracts 70-some million viewers and are often decisive in selecting our president, uh, the candidates do whatever they can to diminish spontaneity in the debate process and uh, to prepare for these kind of events in such a way that they're deploying a series of memorized sound bites. So 
Absolutely. If these guys are asking for our vote for the most important office in the world, they should be capable of answering any question anytime uh, and, and forced to think on their feet without falling apart in front of the American people. The fear of making a gaffe should be trumped by the willingness to stand up and answer questions and the capacity to do so. Um, so we only had three debates this election cycle, even though we had 27 debates in the Republican primary. And the reason is the candidates are scared that at least if they continue to debate, they'll make a mistake, they'll make a gaffe, and it'll cost them the election. And that's just not a legitimate justification for reducing the number of debates, which are the most important way to select a president, particularly in an age of super PACs and massive billionaire financing that's uh, resulting in 30-second television commercials, often deciding election processes. I wanted to tell you that I was sitting at lunch with my sisters the other day, and I said to them, this is such a charade, this debate. I could ask the sitting president, whoever it is, by the way, in this case it would be Obama, why did you pass the National Defense Authorization Act and then state what it means to the public and let them stand up and answer the question? That's a serious question and not sanitize a thing. And then I would ask Romney and whoever would be the contender a most serious question if he were the sitting president. But you never get to the executive orders that were passed under the nose of the American people, the stuff that's pushed through Congress in the middle of the night. All of that is kept at bay. So really nothing's on the table. Is there anything really on the table in these debates? I mean, I engage in this reform project to make our presidential debates better precisely because I believe in their importance. You know, to me, they're the antidote to the, of the, to the influence of money over our political process. If we don't have debates, then voters are largely subject to a barrage of attack ads that are distorting and narrow-minded and scripted, and that's really largely where they're, they're going to make their decisions. So in my opinion, regardless of how bad the debates get, thank God for those debates because at least – uh, voters are making some choices based on actually seeing the candidates speaking and, and attempting to speak thoughtfully on issues. How, how broad and how uh, compelling are the issues actually being addressed in the debates? It's a very narrow bandwidth for two reasons. First, they're only having three of them, and those three debates are hosted by moderators that have been vetted and selected by the candidates. And second of all, there are no third-party voices that are raising issues that are outside of the mainstream. And so we're seeing a very narrow bandwidth of discussion focused overwhelmingly on the same subjects over and over again, tax cuts, budget deficits, uh, you know, who's more supportive of our allies around the world, and rarely are, is anyone breaching into subject matters that are, um, that are very meaningful to the American people and often raised by other candidates like child poverty, the drug war, unlawful detention, uh, military budgets, you know, all, the, all of these um, uh, uh, issues that are result in, in challenging concentrated power. Uh, so they, they tend to have a very intense argument over a very narrow number of issues uh, and often give the illusion of great agree disagreement when in reality the two parties have a lot of things in common. Um, you know, the, the one thing, Kim, that I do want to praise the commission for is that when I first began this project in 2004 and founded my organization, Open Debates, and wrote the book, uh, the formats at the time were really terrible. The candidates each could ask, excuse me, the candidates each could only answer uh, a question for about 90 seconds, and then they had about 30 or 60 seconds to provide a rebuttal. This is, and this is by their own accord, of course. They had deliberately restricted their own response times so they could avoid actual discussion. And as a result, it's exactly what you would anticipate happened. The candidates just deployed a series of memorized sound bites, and we never actually saw the candidates forced to think on their feet. And the contracts at the time explicitly prohibited the candidates from even talking to each other or questioning each other. 
Well, this past election cycle, the formats were actually groundbreaking. The commission essentially adopted the formats that we and others in the civic community had long advocated for, which is to have a sustained period of time for the candidates to talk about the issues after the initial question. So each candidate had two minutes to answer a question, and then there was nine minutes discussion. And it was quite, in my opinion, quite exciting to see the candidates forced to talk to each other, interrupt each other, actually go at each other, yes, on a narrow bandwidth of issues, and yes, often uh, as a result of rather inane questions asked by moderators who have done this countless times. But at least there was conversation between the candidates, and it elicited some real confrontation and fireworks. So the one area, I'm a fierce critic of the commission and the, and its anti-democratic manipulations, but the one area where it deserves praise, I think, is incrementally adopting improvements to the format to elicit actual conversation between the campaigns. Okay, that's a fair assessment and observation. And I noticed the two-minute mark, though, is never two minutes. They don't just talk <laughs> yeah. two minutes, and they that's don't enforce true. it, so why say it? But anyway... You say that in order to get on a ballot for a third-party candidate, you need 701,089 petition signatures, and yet a major candidate doesn't need one. Do you think that there will be an evolution in this, or do you think it's dead? Third-party voices face Herculean structural barriers that make it very, very difficult for them uh, to get their voice heard. And the ballot access issue you mentioned is, is the most important one. Uh, major parties, as you pointed out, uh, presumptively included in every single state's ballot by virtue of their success in the prior election. And third-party voices uh, have to get an extraordinary number of signatures. In fact, it's, it's increased since my book came out. I think it's in excess of one million now uh, just to get on the ballot. This is obviously an effort by the Republican and Democratic parties in state after state after state to keep off threats to their duopoly. There's no, no doubt about it. That's why they're making it so difficult because they want to keep off uh, uh, third parties from challenging their political control, particularly at a time when 40% of the country considers themselves independent, the most in history of the of, of the country. Uh, and they also face third parties also face other structural hurdles. They get scant media coverage, massive fundraising disparities with the Republican Democratic campaigns. Uh, they have voters who reflexively support the Republican Democrats because of their comfort with those two parties. Uh, it, it just doesn't. It, they obviously get excluded from the major presidential debates. So these third parties are spending the vast majority of their time and resources just to get on the ballot, just to have their voices heard, to get the very things that the major party candidates take for granted. And as a result of it, it's very difficult for a third party to pass the threshold of viability unless they're a Ross Pro multi-billionaire who can finance his own campaign and buy tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars of ads that raise the viability of this campaign. And so what happens to third parties is they're essentially reduced to spoilers. Either they're ignored by the media entirely, or if they manage to get a blip of support, they're, they're uh, perceived as potential threats to the Republican Democratic nominee. Spoilers who are eventually relegated to the dustbins of history. Very, very frustrating situation. Because we don't live in a country where 95% of the, of the public is totally wedded to the Republican Democratic parties and thrilled with the choices they have. On the contrary, we, every four years, more and more Americans are shedding their loyalties to either party. And now there are, there are 40% of the country that's independent, which is more than the support for either major party. And there's a genuine yearning for a third party to emerge and capture the imagination of the American people, especially as both major parties are increasingly financed by super PACs and that there's an increasing gridlock in Washington that makes it difficult for compromise and actual legislation. Uh, whether it's going to ever change, is it, which is really the question you asked me, is an impossible prediction. I, I, don't, I don't know how, because each of these choices about how many signatures need to be on state ballots, and each of these decisions about their campaign financing 
are made by either Congress or state legislatures that are overwhelmingly dominated by Republican and Democratic uh, uh, members of the the House or the Senate. And those individuals obviously have no political interest in making it easier for third-party voices to penetrate our political process. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. It's like from soup to nuts, every facet of the process is controlled by the same folks, right? I mean, that's in essence what we're dealing with. And At the same time, as a person in this country who's been here and loves this country, you don't want to lose your sense of spirit and optimism, but it's very, very discouraging. Like Ralph Nader was totally disenfranchised and marginalized, and he was called a spoiler. And I remember as I was in my 20s talking to one of my parents, and they said, oh, a vote for so-and-so is really a vote for so-and-so. I mean, my parents are really smart, but even they were propagandized, too where you couldn't vote for a third party because it was really a vote for the person you don't like in the opposite team. How do we get out of that propaganda? Many of us have ingested it. You know, it's, it, to me, it's, it's part of taking candidate, third party candidates from the world of marginalization to actually being viable contenders. If, if the American people thought that any third party voice actually had a shot at the presidency, the candidate obviously could no longer be deemed a spoiler uh, or some irrelevant voice that's threatening another candidate's uh, chance of success. And that's part of the reason why presidential debate exclusion is so key, because the presidential debates essentially are the gatekeepers to viability. If a third-party candidate is excluded, they're forgotten. They, they, the media ignores them. The voter thinks they're unworthy of their attention. But if they manage to get into the presidential debates, the sky's the limit. You know, Jesse Ventura was polling at 8% of the polls when he's running for governor of Minnesota uh, and uh, prior to the debates. The legal and voters in NPR in that state hosted eight debates and invited Jesse Ventura onto that stage. And he won. He rose from 8% to 37% precisely because of the presidential debates. When he was asked after the election, how did you, how did you do it? How did you win, Jesse? He said, I was, I was allowed to debate. That's all he said. Because the reality is that the debates 
give you an opportunity to show that you're a viable contender who can keep up with the major parties and have something new and fresh to bring to the political process. And so it, that, that's precisely why we focus so much of our energies on the debate process. We can't convince state legislators to lower the ballot access procedures across the state, a country. We can't persuade the media to cover third-party voices that are barely polling. But we can, we can push to replace the private corporation that is principally financed by Anheuser Bush and is controlled by former political operatives of the major parties to be replaced. If enough Americans demand that the Republican Democratic nominees participate in real debates hosted by a genuinely nonpartisan entity, then those candidates will have to do so without paying a political price. You know, so it's a, it's a, it, to me, the presidential debate nut, as, as impossible as it is to crack, is the best chance we've got. And if we do crack that nut, and it is replaced by a genuinely nonpartisan sponsor that includes third-party voices that the American people want to see, then I think we're actually going to see an alteration in our political system. You know, one thing, Kim, we had mentioned is the extraordinary difficulties that third parties face, uh, all the structural barriers they face to actually be heard by the American people. So that's why my organization advocates a very simple criteria for determining who ought to get included in the presidential debate. It's a very simple question we want to ask, which is, who do, you, who do the American people think ought to be included? Right now, the Commission on Presidential Debates uses an arbitrary criteria. They say a candidate needs to reach 15% in the polls in order to be included in our presidential debates. This is an absurdly high threshold that would include every third-party candidate in the last 100 years. We would never see a third-party candidate. But if you're going to use polling criteria to determine who gets to be included in the presidential debates, why not simply ask the American people, who do you want on that stage? It's the only democratic criteria we can have. And if you employ that criteria, only four third-party candidates would have made it in the last 50 years. John Anderson, Ross Perot, Ralph Nader, and Pat Buchanan, all of whom are very respectable political leaders with, with incredibly interesting voices to add to our political system. You mean Ron Paul wouldn't have made it to that? Well, he didn't run as a, as a oh, back in, night in 2008, he did run as an independent voice. One of the, this is, we don't know, actually, because this is one of the more, more frustrating process, uh, uh, situations we face is, the polling companies rarely ask the question. We actually, my organization commissioned a poll in 2000 and 2004, spent thousands of dollars and commissioned Zogby poll to actually ask a question who ought to be included in the presidential debates. But no one did so in 2008, so we actually have no idea if, if Ron Paul would have satisfied that criteria. Can we really trust the polling companies who may be wedded to the two-party debate system? Can we really trust them to ask those kind of questions that you're recommending, the key question, which is who do you want to be included in the presidential debates? Uh, unfortunately, no. You know, the, what's been a big source of frustration, for example, for Gary Johnson's campaign this election cycle is that the, he's not even included in polls when they ask the American people who they want to vote for. So he, he keeps arguing to the commission and to the media that, look, you don't even know how high my support may be because you're already excluding me for every single poll you're taking. They're just focusing on Obama and Romney. It creates a very, very uh, uh, dissatisfying chicken and egg situation where because the poll companies are keeping the third-party voices off of their lists, because the presidential debate commission are keeping the third-party candidates out of the process, because the state legislatures are keeping the third parties off the ballots, people think the third parties are irrelevant. But, of course, they would be relevant if they managed to penetrate any of those three uh, exclusionary systems. Um, but, no, I, Kim, I don't think we can. The, third, the, the poll com- polling companies 
cannot be trusted to include third-party names and voices. What if a new polling company or several companies were formed that would allow all three? Maybe what's needed is a new structure, a new polling company that starts from the ground because they're actually going to reflect what the truth is and what the public really wants. I absolutely agree with you. It's astonishing to me that the very simple question of who do you want to see in the presidential debates has not been asked this election cycle or the previous election cycle. Uh, If the commission was replaced with a citizen's debate commission or some sort of alternate sponsor uh, that advocated the inclusion of, of voices that the majority of the American people wanted to see, I think the polling companies would fall into line and actually ask that question. I don't think they're politically attached to any particular party. I think they just essentially follow the lead of the media and the commission and only paying attention to the two major parties. Um, so I, I think the real issue falls with, with displacing the commission on presidential debates. You know, it's, I think it would be really fascinating to, for your viewers to know what is this commission? I mean, you know, what is this entity that runs our most important election events? Because it sounds like a government agency. If you, you know, you hear the word commission on presidential debates, you think, wow, this is a very formal government agency that was created probably by Congress. It's not. It's a private corporation that's financed largely by Anheuser Bush and other major businesses with interest before Congress. And it's co chaired by two people, Frank Farenkoff and Mike McCurry. And Frank Farenkoff is the former chair of the Republican Party and the nation's leading gambling lobbyist. And Mike McCurry is the former press secretary to Bill Clinton, and he has lobbied extensively on behalf of the telecommunications industry. We have two guys in charge of these debates that are obviously loyal, number one, to their political parties, and number two, have demonstrated the willingness over and over again through their lobbying work to sacrifice the will of the American people for private financial or political gain. And to me, it's disgraceful. How can these two individuals be trusted to make the the right and democratic choices uh, involving the inclusion of viable third parties and the establishment of challenging formats? It's not a coincidence that these two guys are allowing the two major parties to negotiate secret contracts that dictate most of the terms of the presidential debates. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. I just want to take a minute or two and share with you that we really appreciate you listening and sharing with your friends and loved ones and colleagues. And if you like the show, show it. Write something really cool, really nice on It's Rainmaking Time at iTunes. We have our own store there. And like our Facebook page. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter, feel free to do that. We send a bi-monthly newsletter out. And if you like it, share it with all your friends. Another thing we wanted to share with you is that somebody stepped in and started to do transcriptions for us. We have some transcriptions already done. If you would be interested, please drop us a line. We will be posting the transcriptions that are ready for sale. That's another way to assist the show. And for those of you who are in a position to donate $10 a month or $20 a month or more, please do so. Action speaks louder than words. We appreciate you. And thanks again for listening to It's Rainmaking Time. And back to the show. How long was the new contract between Romney and Obama in terms of the parties now? This year, Time Magazine actually managed to get a copy of the contract. Otherwise, it never would have been released because the commission conceals it every four years and uh, does whatever they can to deny its existence. This year, Mike McCurry repeatedly said, there is no contract, there is no contract, there is no contract. And it was a pure lie. Uh, when the contract came out, it was 21 pages long. Most of it, you know, was silly stuff that we don't care about. The heights of the podiums, the temperatures in the auditoriums, 
It said the candidates can't wear risers in their shoes to make themselves look taller. Really, who cares? This is stuff about production that I don't think has any bearing on democracy. But there were very specific provisions in the contract that uh, attempted to eliminate spontaneity from the debates, and specific, specifically the town hall forum. It required all the town hall questions to be pre-screened in advance by the moderator. The moderator would throw out the ones he or she does not like. The moderator would be prohibited from asking follow-up questions, as would the audience, you know, doing whatever they can to narrow the bandwidth of questions being asked. There were other provisions in the contract that actually said the candidates cannot participate in any other debate with any other candidate hosted by any other sponsor, which to me is a bit crazy. Well, that's like a lockdown on the free market. It's kind of like saying, you know, is there a free market? I asked the founder of Gold Money, do you really think there's a free market with derivatives and credit default swaps and being able to short stocks and all that and all this synthetic stuff? And he said, yes, it's just people making choices. It's very interesting when you ask the question, is there a free market when it comes to choosing your political candidate and these debates? And I would say, no, there isn't, is there? I, Kim, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, that agreement right there, that contractual provision that, that, that obligates the two major parties to only participate in three debates hosted by the commission and explicitly prohibits them from participating in any other debate with any other candidate on any other stage hosted by any other sponsor, is fundamentally anti-competitive. It's the opposite of a free market. It's, it's an effort to explicitly exclude any other choices for the, for the American people and to actually ration debates, also something very bizarre. I mean, at a time when we're facing a fiscal crisis, stubborn unemployment numbers, and major foreign policy challenges, why are the major parties rationing debates? It's a... Uh, it's uh, to me. It's 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 not. Isn't it more than rationing debates, though, George? They've actually established a lockdown on speech and communication and inquiry. Absolutely, because what you have is is a, is, a, is a kind of a deadly embrace between the commission and the Republican Democratic parties. Those two candidates will only participate in presidential debates hosted by the commission, and the commission will only allow for presidential debates that include those two parties and implement their agreement. And so this is, this is excluding a huge number of voices outside the Republican Democratic Party. And with those voices being excluded, we're getting a sort of ideological containment. A whole number of issues aren't being addressed during these debates. A whole number of questions aren't being asked during these debates. And the American people are faced with a very, very narrow bandwidth of discussion on a handful of issues. But because there's a monopoly and a lockdown on this, have you ever thought that maybe there is a lawsuit that needs to be done professionally against this commission? Because essentially, it has the monopoly and is closing down democracy on a process level. Unfortunately, Gary Johnson this year actually filed an antitrust lawsuit against the commission. It's, it's unfortunately not a viable case because the antitrust laws were designed to protect consumers in a marketplace. There has to be a product that's bought and sold in the marketplace. Uh, you know, it's not designed to, uh, to, uh, to address the shutting out of political voices and free speech. Uh, but, you know, this is where it gets even more frustrating. You know, the Federal Election Commission uh, oversees our election processes, and they prohibit debate sponsors from accepting corporate contributions, which the commission does, if that debate sponsor is going to oppose or support any political party. Well, clearly the commission opposes or supports a political party and implements agreements between the candidates that excludes third-party voices. So in 1996, the Federal Election Commission's attorney, Larry Noble, conducted an investigation. He wanted to understand why Ross Perot was excluded in 1996. And he made a recommendation in a 31-page report that was outstanding 
that the Federal Election Commission conduct an exhaustive investigation and find out if the commission is breaking federal law. His suspicion was that it was, and he instructed the Federal Election Commission to move forward in uh, further uh, evaluating the, the viability of the commission and determining whether it has a right to continue to sponsor debates. Well, guess what? The Federal Election Commission is run by six people, three Democrats, three Republicans, all appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And they vetoed, they rejected uh, their own lawyers' recommendations and said, nope, we're not going to touch this, we're going to leave it alone. So even the institutions, the oversight agencies that are obligated with protecting our presidential debate process are also bipartisan rather than nonpartisan and are comfortable with the exclusionary system we have now. I want you to say the distinction between bipartisan and nonpartisan. I know it sounds obvious, but I want you to lay it out. Absolutely. It's, it's a very important distinction. Bipartisan simply means choices are being made by two parties. Two parties. It, it, yes, in collaboration with each other, and often that's necessary for, for uh, laws to move forward in Congress and is often a good thing for compromise. But it's vastly different than nonpartisan. Nonpartisan means without the influence of any political parties. And when it comes to protecting our election process, the presidential debates being one major issue, ballot access being another, uh, our media being another, it's, it's a very important distinction. We don't want bipartisan entities in control of these critical components of our democracy because they'll, of course, make sure that our democratic process favors the two parties. We want nonpartisan entities in control of these critical components of our democracy to make sure that the American interests are being served first, not the interest of one or two or more political parties. That's a critical distinction. Well, I want to thank you for the book that you wrote. It's called No Debate, How the Republican and Democratic Parties Secretly Control the Presidential Debates. I want to invite everybody listening to its rainmaking time that would be interested in this to buy the book, read it, The Devil's in the Details, So is the Light. And I want to thank you, George Farah, for the work that you're doing and the contributions that you're making to bringing this into the public mind and getting people to think about it and talk about it. I'm very interested in an action plan for what could be next, and that's why I brought up the concept of starting another polling agency because I think that would better reflect what's going on. And I look forward to more of your adaptations and suggestions in the years to come. Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to George Farah. Reach him by going to opendebates.org. It's rainmaking time. Thanks again.